The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Welcome, everyone. My name is Tobias Matei. I'm the deputy editor of the North American Spine Society Journal, and I have the pleasure of having with me today here Dr. Dominguez and Dr. Kynon. They are the authors of a publication entitled Classifications and Level of Evidence Trends from the Most Influential Literature on Thoracolumbar Burst Fracture, a Bibliometric Analysis, which was recently published uh, in the June edition of NASJ. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I, I'm confident we'll have a great discussion uh, about this paper. So um, to start, would you be able to just give us a brief idea of your um, affiliation, some of your areas of interest, and how you ended up uh, deciding to address uh, this question about the bibliometric impact of uh, the, the literature on thoracal murbers fracture? Sure, sure. Hi, my name is Mary Kynan. I'm the uh, the chief of spinal neurosurgery here at Westchester Medical Center. Um, we are a level one trauma center. Uh, we're a regional trauma center for the state of New York. We're just a little bit north of New York City in the suburbs. And our catchment area includes um, everything just north of the city up to about Albany and then east and west. Um, so we do see a fair bit of, uh, of trauma. <laughs> so, and, and that's kind of how we, uh, we came about uh, with this bibliometric analysis. Um, we do see a fair bit of thoracolumbar fractures, especially burst fractures, and we're very comfortable using the TLIC score. So we wanted to figure out, you know, how the different grading systems for these thoracolumbar uh fracture management, how the literature affected them and how they affected the literature in terms of productivity and level of evidence. And uh, Dr. Dominguez and I, we have a, a large research group here with uh, medical students, uh, neurosurgeon, orthopedic residents uh, that are involved in uh, lots of our projects. We like to, uh, I guess my area of interest for research is uh, kind of like spine outcomes, um, and also looking at uh, what we're doing surgically and the impact that it has, and if there's any ways that we can make it either more efficient or work on areas where we may be having problems to better serve our patients. Perfect. And so before we, we go into the, the discussion uh, of the methodology we employ to, to answer these questions, give us a general idea of the findings of, uh, of your search, and then we'll discuss uh, some of the implications of that for our understanding of the impact of the current classification systems, as well as for um, the level of evidence of literature publishing those peers that, that you divided in your paper. Sure. Well, you know, how we carried out this search, um, basically, we uh, queried the, the web of science for burst fractures. Um, we also uh, looked at uh, the AO classification and, and, and used that as part of our search. A3 and A4, which are true burst fractures. Uh, we also excluded uh, 
certain articles, ones that weren't written in English, ones that were uh, not related to trauma, those that were related uh, to, to, uh, to cancer, uh, we didn't include those because that's really, you know, the management is it's similar, but, but not exactly the same as, as with, a, you know, a traumatic burst fracture. Um, from that, we picked the uh, 250 most cited ones, uh, and then Jose and the team reviewed them. Uh, they got rid of uh, articles that didn't uh, fit the inclusion or exclusion criteria. But what they also found was that um, we missed some articles. So they, they revised the search. Jose, what did you use to revise the search? I believe it was trauma. And yeah, we wanted to add a keyword. Uh, I believe it was injury uh, that really uh, captured more of the articles that were uh, pertinent to the literature uh, instead of just um, burst fracture as the words. And that gave us another 250 articles. Then we, uh, we pooled both of those lists together. We removed duplicates. Um, and looking through that, that, that final list, we were able to decipher uh, articles that we considered you know, guidelines for the management of traumatic thoracolumbar burst fractures. Um, and that included the AO classification in 1994, which was the, the first iteration of it. Uh, also, the, uh, the McCormick uh, Gaines load sharing classification for uh, how to manage those uh, surgically, whether or not you, know, you need to uh, uh, be more aggressive with your, uh, your reconstructions. Um, and then in 2005, uh, Telix, and then uh, 2013, I believe, when it was the revised AO uh, classification with the inclusion of the, uh, the Telix score. Those were separated and removed from our search. And then for ease, um, we decided to just pick the 100 most cited articles from that combined list. And, and, and that's, that's what we used uh, to work with. Um, to look at how the guidelines affected the citations of uh, the articles, we divide them, we divided, uh, the time periods up uh, based on the guidelines. So we put the date that the guidelines were published as the end of each of the errors. So it started from 1990 to 1994. 1990 was the, uh, the first article in our uh, list of uh, top 100s. Um, so the first, the first period was 1990 to 1994. The second period was 1995 to 2005 when the Telix was published. Um, and then it was 2005 to 2013 when the combined Telix AO or the updated AO classification. And then 2014 to present. Okay, so in terms of your results, and I'll, I'll briefly describe that, please correct me if there's anything else you would like to add, but you found that I mean, there were a significant amount, I would say most of the literature in the period, the initial period uh, after the AO spine classification and after the T-leaks uh, were randomized trials. And you saw a tendency uh, for articles after the T-leaks uh, to be mostly systematic reviews and meta-analysis. And one of your conclusions is that the T-leaks was so central to our classification system that probably the most cited articles recently um, were not 
in some way prospective randomized trials, but were mainly meta-analyses. So you try to establish with that that the TLIX was a cornerstone of the classification system and a major uh, turning point in how researching thoracolumbar burst fractures um, progress throughout the years. Is that a correct? Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's definitely a def, definitely a correct assumption of, of uh, you know one of the the major points of our article. Um, I'm very comfortable using the TLIX score. That's how I was trained with uh, managing these these trauma cases and talking with my colleagues about whether or not to take a patient to surgery or not. I think, you know, one of the things that I struggle with and particularly is when you get a traumatic burst fracture and it kind of fits into that TLIX of four category and it really becomes surgeon's preference when to take them to surgery, when not to take them to surgery. Um, that ambiguity in there, that's what spurred us to, to do this bibliometric analysis. Um, based on what we saw, the majority of the randomized controlled trials and the increasing level of evidence to strong level of evidence really started off in the time periods leading up to the TLIX. And it kind of culminated with the, with the TLIX score. Um, I think because the TLIX score is very, uh, very user-friendly, a lot of different institutions use it to help them with uh, research and also to, you know, of course, to guide management of their patients. And then I think after the, 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 the TLIX classification came out, um, a focus of, of, of research that has been published was looking at validating it, uh, looking at um, different ways of using it for research purposes or trying to, to guide management uh, a, a little bit further, a little bit more straightforward and take away some of that ambiguity. And that's why it, it moved away from randomized controlled trials to more kind of overviews with meta-analysis and systematic reviews and uh, those sorts of publications. So yeah. I think very interesting in a way that uh, you see a lot of you know, investigation into these uh, injuries and um, there wasn't really a, a score before that told you one way or the other whether or not the patient should have a surgery and uh, it didn't really show uh, characteristics that are comprehensive such as uh, posterior ligamentous injury, um, the deformity and the neurologic status. I think it put together very important clinical um, aspects and it really made that decision a lot easier. So I think after that score, there wasn't really a need for, for anything new. And then uh, it became kind of accepted as, as, a, as a guideline. So I think this research uh, you've done, it gives us a great opportunity to discuss some of the methodological uh, issues that come up when we're planning a bibliometric analysis. And I wanna focus a little bit on that. Uh, personally, I have no problem with the assumption that the T-Leaks was a cornerstone. And I think no one would deny that it was really a hallmark. So your thesis that, it was really kind of um, the top uh, in terms of quality uh, of research and that really it kind of settled the paradigm for decision-making in thoracolumbar fractures. I think that's valid, but I see two ways of doing bibliometric analysis. And I've, I'm, I'm doing uh, a bibliometric analysis on the Glasgow Coma Scale with uh, Graham Tisdale, who was the senior author of the scale. So uh, I have my team conducting and some of the discussion we had um, during the process, I think it, it may give us um, some valuable insights. So, I mean, one way to proceed with this is to do simply a very objective analysis, is to look to the literature, 
um, pull the numbers and then write the top 100 articles, the most cited one. And I don't have any problem with the methodology you employ, which is a little bit of more ad hoc approach that um, you not only analyze those results from the search engine, but you, you come up with, say, hey, I mean, the AO classification, the T-leaks and uh, the load sharing classification, everyone knows that those are important articles. So let's be reasonable. Let's use those to set our time periods. And I think that that's a very uh, interesting way of not manipulating the data, but at least putting the data into the context that it's acceptable for us. So I don't have a, a problem with that. And I think it's a very wise way of conducting bibliometric analysis. Um, the one issue and concern I have with uh, using some of your results to conclude that after the T-leaks, the, the number of randomized trials and original research decrease uh, is the fact that whenever you're doing uh, a bibliometric analysis over a span of 20 or 25 years, you run into the problem that the most recent literature had much less time to be cited than the other literature. So if we, if we see, for example, the articles that was pu were published in 2014, they had 80 years to be cited, um, to be cited while those published in um, 1998 had 24 years. So uh, basically you have a period of exposure for citations, uh, which is three times larger. And I think that, I mean, one way of trying to address that or we've tried to do in our research is to try to normalize the impact of the publication by the numbers of year under exposure. Um, so I don't know if you've tried to do that and you can comment on that, um, but that ties to a very important problem when we're looking to an impact of an idea or impact of a publication. I don't know if you've ever heard about the, the what is called the Lindy's, Lindy effect. And it was uh, basically, it's, it's an idea that was initially proposed several decades ago and was popularized by Nicholas Taleb uh, that a statistician that wrote the black swan. And in formal terms, it says that the life expectancy of a non-perishable thing, such as an idea, a book, is proportional to their current age. And that seems to be a little bit abstract, but it comes to the common notion that, um, especially for ideas and books, uh, things that have been in place for a long time they have a much higher chance of being in place in the future. So for example, the writings of Shakespeare, they've been around for, for centuries. So probably the life expectancy of that, it's more than a century or two, while any writing from the 20th century, which has been around for 30 or 40 years, probably has a, at least an average lower life expectancy. So probably they're gonna be around for the next 30 or 40 years, but we don't know if they're gonna last as long as Shakespeare. And that goes to, I mean, this is, was not a new idea. Uh, the C.S. Lewis once said that for every new book, you should read an old book. And his justification was not that old books are better than the new ones. It's just that the old books that are available today, they are time proof, uh, proven. So, I mean, they've been here for such a long period of time that you know that they are good quality. While nowadays we have a lot of books and we're only gonna know the ones that are gonna last hundred years for now. And I mentioned the whole discussion because um, if you imagine, for example, the literature that was published in 2014, you start with a pool of publications uh, which has a mixed quality or let's say in terms of the impact factor, it's a mixed bag. 
And throughout the years, after a decade or two, you can imagine that some publications are not going to be cited and is, are not going to be impactful. And some publications are going to really take over, um, take off and, and have a meaningful impact in the literature. So I think you have these two problems when you're doing bibliometric analysis, the way you did in terms of just the, the absolute number of citations. One is to try to normalize by the years of exposure. And the other one, which is a little bit more challenging, is that regarding the most recent literature, we still don't know which ones are going to last or, or be impactful. It may be the case that there are some publications uh, since 2014 that are going to be the, the first or the second in the top 100 in 24 years. But we still don't know that. So. I'm just saying that not to, to detract or to, uh, or to reduce the merit of your search, but just to highlight that, I mean, <clears throat> the conclusion that the literature in the, the past 10 years or uh, since the, um, 2014, uh, it it's, doesn't have the same impact or we don't have the same uh, number of publications within the top 100, it's a little bit deceitful because of those two uh, phenomena that I mentioned. So I don't know you th if you thought about that. Oh, yes. Devising oh, for, the methodology. Yeah, for very, very much so. Actually, that, that is one of the limitations of our study design is that you're absolutely right. The articles that are written after 2014, they don't have as much time being out there for citations as articles that were written I don't know, 1990 or even before then or so. So that's definitely a drawback. Um, and we were trying to figure out, you know, the best way to normalize it because you're right. If we did this study, let's say, instead of doing it in 2021, like we did, we did this in 2030. Um, our results probably would be different. Some of the articles in the top 100 would not be there. Um, also the, um, the classification schemes may may change um to address that we did uh, apply a normalization so we looked uh more at citations per year to normalize it to hopefully you know take away a little bit of that uh, uncertainty or or give more credence to uh articles that are younger compared to the ones that are older and going back to the classification schemes um the TLIX, like we, 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 you know, we keep talking about the TLIX score, how it's well used and, 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 and well liked by, by a lot of practitioners. In our top one, I'm sorry, in our top 10 list that was devised or developed from the top 100, it was only cited a few times as compared to the classification schemes from 1994. I believe those were classified uh, or, or included in the, the articles. They were cited, I think, six times, and the TLIX was cited uh, one time or so. So um, that, was, that was surprising to, uh, to, to us. But it also goes back to your point that they've been around longer um, than the TLIX score just because they were developed uh, 1994 or a little bit earlier. And I think one way to explain that is that, I mean, if you're writing a publication about a new classification, for example, when the authors of the leaks were writing their article, they're going to cite all previous attempts of classifications. Um, 
now we don't have any major classification system that was proposed since the T-Leaks. So, I mean, I think it's less likely that you're going to see the T-Leaks cited um, in an article or in a meta-analysis or an article which is not focused on classification system, but is, for example, a prospective randomized trial on the timing of surgery. I mean, the T-Leaks is meaningful in, in terms of, of, of divide, how they're going to uh, divide their, uh, uh, their groups. Uh, but in the sense, I think that's somewhat at least explain why, I mean, once you have one or two classification system, every further classification system will tend to, to cite that. Um, but I agree with you. I think your thesis, um, it, it, it's very, it's very, it makes sense because if you see, I mean, most of the randomized trials that you see after the T-leaks in terms of, I mean, it was the first classification that gave us at least a decision-making paradigm, right? I remember the old AO classification, it had A1, 3, 4, 5, it had tons You're of, and at the right. end of the yeah. day, you didn't know if they were surgical or not. And then the new revised AO was a little bit easier to kind of manage, but it still didn't give us the paradigm of operative and non-operative. So I think it makes sense to see the T-Leaks as these hallmark publications. And um, the only thing that I would, would mention, and, and I don't know if you have the same impression, is that there's still significant room for, I mean, there are many other questions regarding uh, the management of thoracolumbar fractures, which is not purely related to operate or non or, or, or conservative treatment, right? I mean, the some of the, the randomized trials you found was re, were related to short segment instrumentations versus long um, instrumentation. There's something related um, in terms of uh, maybe timing of surgery and outcomes and things like that. So I wouldn't, I would be a little bit reticent to say that, I mean, we, we have everything that, that, I mean, we have all the answers for thoracolumbar fractures so far. I mean, that may be correct in terms of classification system that we may not need a new large in, uh, um, cooperative effort to develop a new classification system. Uh, maybe we could improve uh, even the T-leaks. Uh, I have a previous publication that especially, you probably have seen that, but especially the burst fractures, comminuted burst fractures may be an issue because they can give you a low, a non-operative T-leaks and they tend to fail uh, in kyphosis. So sometimes combining the the load sharing, the McCormick classification, and the T-leaks may be available for those community burst fractures. But certainly, I, I, I definitely agree with that, especially um, I think the degree of kyphosis, um, the degree of the structure of the vertebral body is not necessarily taken into account. Uh, it's just more of a gross description of like a burst or compression. Um, another thing is I think mechanical pain uh, is also something that should be taken into account in terms of the symptoms of the patient in addition to just neurologic injury. I think this suggests that the injury may be more unstable uh, than maybe, um, you know, seen with a telix of four, for example, we have a burst fracture, but uh, the degree of kyphosis and comminution and, and mechanical pain may suggest that the injury um, may be better served with a, with a instrument fusion. We're, we're currently in the, in the works of putting together uh, a manuscript. It's a meta-analysis looking at telix of four just for that. Um, uh, trying to decipher based on the literature uh, which patients do better, the ones that go to surgery or the ones that are managed conservatively and what will bring them to surgery if they're managed, you know, non-operatively initially. Um, you know, preliminary results from our 
analysis are pointing towards those that have surgery up front do better. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, I, 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 I very much agree with you that, you know, further work needs to be done uh, looking at different operative techniques on these types of fractures, um, applying maybe, you know, additional grading criteria, additional scales uh, to that. Um, that is because we are a trauma center here and we see a lot of high energy trauma where they end up with these types of thoracolumbar injuries. That's one of our active areas of research. Um, another thing that we're trying to get off the ground with an IRB study uh, in combination with the trauma surgery service here and orthopedic spine surgery is looking at what are characteristics of these traumatic thoracolumbar burst fractures that really don't need a spine surgery consult um, don't need MRI imaging because it's very labor intensive and resource intensive to get someone that has what we know is going to be a stable injury um, and extremely unlikely to have anything uh, that needs something further than outpatient follow-up. Uh, won't even need a brace. So we're trying to look at that and, and you know, look, from our, look, look at our experience here at our trauma center to see if, if this is something that we can come up with some guidelines to, uh, to apply and then, uh, you know, share with other trauma centers and, and the uh, medical uh, public as well, or the medical group. <laughs> and in terms, of, in terms of the decision-making for these fractures, I would like to hear your personal opinions. I think there's, I mean, I, you're, you're very correct in saying that, um, I mean, simply applying the classification and the site to operate or not, uh, it's probably not the best approach. And I mean, sometimes you have patients that are even too sick uh, because they are polytrauma to go to the OR for, for an open surgery. And, but at the same time, you still think that if there's some degree of instability because of the degree of comminution, or you have patients with lower limb fractures that you know they're not going to be up and walking anytime soon. So you have some time to let the fracture heal. And one thing that I've seen and I've done here, I mean, we're also a level one trauma center with uh, uh, a lot of these fractures. I've seen a lot of fractures that are very, uh, very comminuted. So um, there's no ligamentous injuries, there's no compression of the narrow elements, but you know that if the patient is gonna be up and walking, a brace is probably not gonna do the job. But at the same time, maybe the patient is, is, uh, is old or he doesn't have any surgical conditions. So one thing that I've done in my practice, I know the evidence is not great for that. I mean, we know that the evidence for uh, cement augmentation is mainly for osteoporotic fractures, but a few of those cases I've offered the family just a percutaneous kyphoplasty to get some methyl methacrylate um, into that burst fracture and try to um, have the cement uh, joining those fragments uh, together to restore the anterior column and give some degree of stability for those patients to be able to be up and walking. Um, so one of the questions is, does that really make sense or does it really, in comparison with a brace, does it really decrease the rate of kyphotic deformity at the long term? I don't know, I don't have that answer. I've seen patients doing better in terms of the pain just because yes, you restored the anterior column, but I don't know if you've thought about that or maybe 
uh, sometimes for this borderline case is just doing MIS, one above, one below, and with the plan of later removing the screws. I think that's a good. Oh idea. yeah, we we've done we've done all of that. Um, I'm a big fan of the percutaneous vertebroplasty uh, for those fractures, just to to stabilize them and get the patient moving. Because I've found that vertebroplasty um, works really well <laughs> for for a lot of these fractures and and, and helps with pain significantly. Um, we also will do percutaneous screws. We recently got a robot um, here at our institution. So we're trying to uh, put it through its paces and really evaluate it and get comfortable using it. So I think percutaneous uh, screw fixation uh, without opening the patient up and doing a traditional you know, posterior lateral arthrodesis, just instrumented fusion, uh, works very well in these patients, especially if they're young, because you always go back and take out the screws and that way restore their, their flexibility. Um, I, uh, I wish we had this uh, conversation a little bit earlier. Um, one of my colleagues had a commutated burst fracture that was, that was a four when you calculated the score and the patient was very, very active, but it was a high energy impact and the fracture, the fracture itself uh, had several different fracture planes, but when you looked at it on the CT scan, it was very difficult to see if uh, it was going to fail or not, but uh, we put him in a brace and he came to clinic several weeks later with marked, marked kyphosis and terrible pain. So that's my case for today. That's why I'm in my scrubs. We're uh, fusing him. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that always makes you think twice. Maybe we should have done surgery or done a vertebroplasty up front, but um you know, at least he proved to himself and he proved to me that he failed. So now it's the problem with that sometimes that I've seen is that, I mean, even if you do one or two or three kyphoplasties and maybe not all those patients would develop kyphotic deformity. If you develop kyphotic deformity, you may be buying a 360 down the road. So you're, yeah. you're thinking about a small 30 minute procedure percutaneous. Uh, you can even do unilateral if you want versus uh, a lateral or an anterior approach followed by a posterior approach, which is a completely different animal in terms of aggressiveness. So uh, I'm, I completely agree with you. I think the TLIX give us a good idea about which fractures at the extreme are operative or non-operative, but I always tell my residents to keep an open mind, even if you decide to do something, I mean, how aggressive are you gonna be? I mean, do you really need an open approach with two above, two below with fusion? Can you do hypercutaneous? Can you maybe add one above and one below with some cement at the index level or some screws at the index level? So those are all questions that I think we still need some prospective randomized studies to compare those options and give us an idea about uh, the best approach. How do you see the future in terms of the published research in thoracolumbar fractures? Do you think it's gonna be more focused on the treatment, comparing the treatment options where, rather than comparing surgery with non-operative uh, non care? Or um, do you see any specific area that in the near future you would see new randomized trials rather than just uh, meta-analysis and and kind of retrospective re uh, reviews we've had so far in the recent years? I, I think, you know, I think there's, there's still going to continue to be meta-analysis meta -analysis done as well as retrospective studies. I do think, though, that uh, spine surgeons and, and, you know, large groups of spine surgeons are going to be focusing more on what to do in that gray area um, of, you know, surgery versus no surgery. And if you do go to surgery, 
are minimally invasive techniques uh, or something that's not as disruptive as a, as a large open, open operation, uh, just as, as good. Um, uh, also, I do think that if you look at the guidelines as it is uh, from spine societies, as well as uh, neurosurgical societies, um, there's real no good level of evidence to, to treat these. You could go anterior, you could go posterior, you can do a combination. Um, you know, and I, I think that, that, that's, that that's good because you could treat it a number of ways, but I think more research is gonna be looking at, is a posterior approach better? Uh, is an anterior approach better? If you go posterior, how many levels do you need to include? And also in the specific part of the spine, if it's close to a junctional level, do you go smaller or do you go bigger? I think those are questions where there's gonna be some active research um, in that. I think the decision whether or not to go to surgery, I, I think we're, we're pretty comfortable with that, but it's really figuring out the surgical approach, which one is, is better for these. And it may be that different parts of the spine or different areas of the thoracolumbar spine are more amenable to a different approach. One size does not fit all, but I think that that's where research is going to, going to go um, with this sort of thing. I think also including some of the, um, you know, sagittal balance parameters that uh, have been described heavily recently um, and applying them to uh, a traumatic injury and really taking those into account and correcting whatever deformity may be there. Um, I think another thing to look at is uh, the MRI findings. Uh, ligamentous injury uh, is rather broad in terms of um, its appearance on MRI and its significance uh, clinically. Uh, you know, the... Uh, presence of ligament injury may or may not uh, cause significant clinical uh, instability of the, of the injury. So I think that uh, better definition of uh, MRI findings uh, in which ligaments uh, mean uh, significant injury. And also, I think just uh, the fact that there's subluxation, I think that that itself would suggest instability with or without an MRI. Uh, just kind of be, be more um, defined when it comes to uh, how an MRI can be useful. I think that would be also helpful. Now, I want to ask you a question because, you know, Jose brings up a point about uh, deformity. A lot of our patients have scoliosis. Um, you know, when I manage these, as well as when I manage tumors, um, I don't apply deformity techniques. I, I now I'm starting to apply them. You know, do you cross a junctional zone? Do you see where the patients, you know, the, the top of the apex of their curve is? And do you include that in your, your instrumentation construct? I think a lot of focus will also be on that as well uh, in terms of spinal alignment, um, you know, preventing issues with postoperative deformity if you don't take the patient's initial deformity into consideration. And I think that's a very valuable point. And I just had a case a few weeks ago that I was discussing with my resident. Um, it was like a 75-year-old lady, and she had a terrible coronal deforming the lumbar spine, also some sagittal imbalance. And on top of that, she had an unstable fracture with posterior ligamentous injury and burst fractures. And my resident asked, so what are you gonna do with her spine? And I said, we're gonna fuse in place. I mean, this is an acute injury. And if at some point, I mean, she has significant coronal or sagittal imbalance affect her, her quality of life, 
yes, we have to come back and, and, and address those issues. But at least personally, when I treat deformity, I tend to rely a lot on interbody fusion, uh, either with X leaf or T leaves. And to take a patient, even if that patient is not a polytrauma, to a big T10 to pelvis with five level T leaves and a PSO in the setting of an acute fracture, uh, I think it's at, at least I have the mindset that say, hey, th this spine has been uh, crooked or there's some coronal starch imbalances in there for, uh, for a long time. Um, um, let's just reach, restore to what we had before this injury and later we figure, figure out I mean, if this patient is really a candidate for deformity surgery. I don't know if that's the way you approach deformity in this, the, the, the type of setting, but I've not seen anyone doing a big T10 to pelvis for... Um, let's say a, a burst fracture at L3 a big, with multi-level T leaves because you want to address both problems at the same time. Yeah, no, I mean, our practice here is, is very similar to yours. We're very conservative. Um, you know, I, I think maybe adding an additional level up or down, you know, to, to address a, you know, a curb just to make sure you get to a, a, a stable vertebral segment, but doing a big reconstruction for a burst fracture with multi-level T-lifts. I think those patients, you know, in the setting of polytrauma, the main goal is stabilize and get out of the operating room. You know, their care and their recovery is really done in the ICU, not, not with these surgical procedures. Um, stabilize the spine, let the nurses take care of them so they don't get to cubit eye, get them up out of bed. But really, I, I would not put them through a, a large uh, reconstruction, at least at that time. And I think what Dominguez mentioned about the, the future studies involving sad, sagittal balance parameters, it's very important. And it speaks a little bit to how variable this population is. I mean, I've always had the feeling that I, I look to our, our volume and say, we have so many of these fractures. Why can't we study this in a prospective way, in a better way? And especially if you consider your experience and my experience plus uh, the 20 trauma, level one traumas, we can see how we can get big numbers. And then you go through those randomized trials, the, the, the five most recent randomized trials in your list, and they're all comparison between 30 patients and 40 patients. So they're clearly under power. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the problem that I see, I mean, I, and I can tell in the past, we've been thinking about the whole, uh, I mean, the idea was a prospective randomized trial comparing what I start doing here, which is kyphoplasty for those comminuted burst fractures um, without ligamentous injuries versus a brace. And I would basically look at, you know, pain outcomes and also kyphotic deformity and need for reoperation. The problem with that is that I mean, it's such a, a, a diverse population in terms of the sagittal balance, in terms of their age, in terms of other factors, which may, the surgeon may ad hoc decide to not enroll the patient into a trial. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not that simple to do a trial for thoracolumbar burst fracture with more than 30 or 40 patients. That's the feeling that I have in terms of, I mean, it's not only the radiological parameters, but then you have the, the age. Uh, the very fact uh, you probably have the same experience. I mean, you have the same fracture uh, that you think you can do one above and one below. And one patient has a very large spinal canal with a pedicle of L2 and L3, which is barely three millimeters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that patient, you have to go much longer while most patients, you can do a six, five screw uh, from T12 down to L3. So if you're enrolling those patients in a short versus long uh, fixation and comparing 
it's probably those are probably so such different injuries because of the anatomy of each patient that it becomes somewhat problematic just to bundle them together and randomize. Yeah, so it's prospectively, it's definitely is a challenge, uh, but I, I think that uh, with certain you know statistical analysis, you can look at a retrospective large cohort and apply something like propensity score matching uh, for variables of interest, and you know take a look at. Uh, outcomes based on on those controls. Um, it, it's not the same as a randomized control trial, uh, but I think it would it would give us some interesting information. For sure. Um, anything else you would like to highlight about your study or some of the results? Maybe some surprising results you had uh, when when we you got your analysis or something you would like to highlight to our listeners. Yeah, the level of evidence. I thought that was very interesting how the level of evidence uh, correlated, you know, with increasing time up until the TLIX. Um, You know, I know it was a bold statement that we made as our conclusion, um, but I thought that that was interesting. Um, And also with uh, moving away from randomized controlled trials to more systematic reviews and kind of pooling of the the data from the literature after that. I think it does have to do that the question was answered pretty well. Uh, the research question was answered pretty well with the TLIX score. Um, and I'm just interested to see how this will pan out in the future uh, with more active research and uh, the grading systems and then looking how this applies to different types of surgical management and approaches to the spine. I'm very interested to see what, what, what comes with that. Anything else you would like to highlight, Dr. Dominguez? Yeah, certainly. I think, uh, again, uh, the uh, one limitation of the study, uh, we did uh, control and uh, I, think, I don't think it was mentioned, but after t- 2005, there was actually an increase in the average citations per year, uh, suggesting, I think, what you mentioned about, you know, an article having longevity um, based on, on its uh, control for that uh, number of years that it's been out. Uh, and I think that that, again, highlights that combined with like the high level of evidence that was produced after that. Uh, I think it, uh, you know, suggests that you know, this really was uh, the paper that kind of summed everything up. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time today. And we appreciate uh, your research and you choosing the NASDAQ to publish it. Um, this is a very interesting um, study and uh, it's a topic that affects um, most surgeons, especially those working on, on level one trauma centers. And it's good not only to discuss some of like we had some of discussion about the management of those cases, but what are the le- what is the level of evidence and how that has been playing out in the literature in the past decades? I think it gives us very valuable insights into where we should focus our efforts um, in the future. So thank you very much for our time and have a great day. Thank, thank you. you.